The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please join me in Exodus chapter 20. I love that line that we sang, Lord, renew a steadfast spirit in me to rest in you alone. That's what we need the Lord to do to renew us so that we will really rest in him alone. That's what we saw last week as we began to look at Sabbath rest and how our souls need to daily rest in the Lord and And our hearts are ultimately restless until they find their rest in the Lord Jesus. This week we'll see more how that command applies to our daily work in the Lord as well. And the fourth commandment has moral and physical applications for workers and also for worship. God wants us to care for our body and God also has a great care that we would gather with His body, the body of Christ. And we're going to consider today, how does the Sabbath relate to the Lord's Day? And also, I want us to consider how it relates to Labor Day, which in God's providence is tomorrow. This is going to be part two of our study on the Sabbath, labor, law, and the Lord's Day. And if you missed part one last week, you'll you'll want to get that for the rest of the story. But let's look at Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. The sojourner, by the way, was a a Gentile who was among the Jews We might say this is the first labor law. You shall labor is part of the command. And this was a a national holiday. Holy day and holiday are actually related in the original way those words were used. Labor day in America was instituted as a federal holiday in 1894. Encyclopedia Britannica says it was originally to honor workers and their contribution to society And this day in particular, it said, was chosen actually to deflect attention from a socialist movement. In 1894, there were many blue laws across America, laws that would limit most types of labor on the Lord's Day. How many of you growing up remember laws against certain businesses being open on Sunday? Okay, a lot of you, not all of you though, especially those of us who are younger There were many other labor laws for children and immigrant workers that were still to come. But God was ahead of all of that 3,500 years ago in Exodus chapter 20. Child labor laws, anti-discrimination towards foreigners or towards females being treated the same, true and just equity. Those are God's ideas and God's ideals. The world sometimes uses those terms with a different connotation, but... But the Lord of the Sabbath here speaks to and is concerned about everyday work and days off from work and how we treat those we work with. This is important to our God. Or those of you that have people work for you, how you treat them is important to our God right here in the heart of the Ten Commandments. And in God's providence and timing in the text, tomorrow is Labor Day, today is the Lord's Day. And I want us to just consider some Sabbath reflections for labor this day. This will be our outline. Sabbath reflections for labor this day. We'll look at the original context and then ours today. And then Sabbath regulations versus the Lord's Day. And we'll need to look at the broader context of the New Testament. But we looked at verse 8 and verse 10 last time. We need to reflect more on verse 9 where it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is something our society needs. And I think our society has lost so much of this idea of of working hard and doing all your work. 
finishing a job. And as parents and as people of God, we need to labor to restore God's design. Because our world isn't teaching them this. We need to do a better job of of teaching this. And we need to remember when Exodus 20 was given and this command to work, most of the labor that Israel did was around their homes. And this is where it starts, at the home, working hard, finishing the job. And kids here, it is not six days of rest and play. We need to work, and, and anyone at any age, if you're, if you're tempted to laziness or idleness, God said these words with thunder. God wrote these words with his own finger, and this is a part of it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, except the seventh day. This is a commandment to, to do your work and to do all your work and, and to work hard, and I'm convicted by this because I'm responsible to give God's view of work to my kids. And I need to do a better job at helping others view their jobs in a better way. Because really, this is something we're to do to imitate God in verse 11. And we'll get to that in a moment. The, the Ten Commandments include ethics. And right in the middle is a godly work ethic that we need to labor to live out. Work is not a curse. There would not be this positive command in the the heart of these moral commands here if work was a curse. Work is a moral and noble good. And we need to do this to imitate our loving Father in verse 11. Verse 11 is talking about creation where God shows and tells how to work as He does. Genesis 1 is what this is referring to, where ten times God says that he saw that it was good, and then when he was done with all of his work, it was very good as he made man and woman. And then as he made man and woman, he, with these same terms, called them to work. And God models what good work looks like in what it's referring to here. We could say God models good labor practices God speaks. We've got to speak to, to work. He's creative. He, he plans. He designs. God discusses first within the Trinity. Within, he says, let us. This is a, a work that they were doing together. And God doesn't just give orders in his work in creation. Remember at the end of it how God stoops down. He gets involved. He comes and he breathes into the man of dust, into his nostrils, the breath of life. He's creating us in his image and he's delegating us to work, to reflect him. Think of all those ways that God worked and how those can relate to how we need to reflect him as his image bearers and how we speak and using the creative gifts he's given us in his image and planning, designing, and and speaking with others, getting involved and working as God does Work is not a necessary evil to fund our lifestyle. That's not the way the Bible speaks of work. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whatever you do, do it all to, what? The glory of God. That's where everything should start. That should be our chief end. Here's what Carl Henry said. We need to reflect God's creative ability on Monday in the factory no less than on Sunday. We need to reflect God every day. And think of how God did his work also. He could have done it all in a moment. God is almighty. He could have just spoken everything into existence in a second if he wanted to. But he did his work of creation in six literal days. And what this passage is telling us is he did that as a pattern for what we are also to do literally. We need to literally work on literal days. This was an evolution over billions of years. God did not mislead or misspeak in verse 11 when it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, so that's the universe, and then on earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. That's why Israel was to work and do the same in verses 9 through 10. Every week of their life, believing that God had spoken truth to them in that statement. And we believe 
that six-day creation is truth. But think about this also. If he really created over six long ages, then what he would be saying is here, work a very long time, but just at some point take a day off. But that's not what he says. Every week they were to remind themselves of what the Lord did on that first week. Here's another truth our world often misses. Work is God's gift as part of his very good creation. So creation is good, but work is God's gift. Do you ever think about that? Here's Ecclesiastes 2, 24. It says, There's nothing better for man than to tell himself that labor is good, that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. And then chapter 3, verse 13, Every man who sees good in all his labor, this is the gift of God. Work is God's gift. It's from his hand. Labor is good. You need to tell yourself labor is good. You need to see good in what you're doing, no matter how mundane it is. Don't despise the gift that God has given from his hand. I've been in touch with our our brethren in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I know there are their whole church there, people would trade anything to be able to have a job like the kind of jobs that we complain about here. Desperate for work and their economy has been decimated, but I I think about how Americans often curse work and how often we complain about work. But God gave work and he gave it before the fall, before the curse of sin that came in. It, it does become harder by the toil of the brow that we labor now, but work is still for God's glory. And work, did you ever think about this? Work is going to continue in heaven. The, the, we're going to be serving the Lord in heaven, not just sitting around on clouds with harps. That's nowhere in Scripture. We're going to be serving Him, the end of the Bible says. And to hate work insults the God who gives us Work And so if you think or speak wrongly about your work, let the force of this text and this truth throughout Scripture move you to repent and to renew your commitment to want to view your work rightly and represent God rightly. And as I'm talking about work here, verse 11 is rooting this in the creation order. You might say work is part of a creation ordinance, but I don't want you to just think of a paid labor force because when God gave work to Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they weren't getting a paycheck. And these Israelites in the wilderness are not working in, in workplaces like today. They're in the wilderness, but they were to work here. And there's a, a moral law here beyond Israel that the able-bodied have a calling from God to work. And I think even whatever you do, if you consider it a secular job, that it's also, in, a, in another sense, a divine vocation. This is one of the things recovered in, in past centuries, this understanding of our work as a vocation, something we do, whatever that is that we do, to do it to the Lord, to his glory. Here's what Ephesians 6.5 says, that, that we're to work for earthly masters as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That's Ephesians 6. So work is good that we're to do with good will. And we're not just to do it like the Lord. We're to do it for the Lord. And so as we think about even tomorrow being... Labor Day, a a day of rest for most labor for for most of us. Those of you who will return to the labor force this week, how is your witness with those who are your co-laborers? And I know there's some in this room who work largely uh, from home. You work in all kinds of different settings and maybe you interact more on the phone or on the, on the computer with different people, but do those you work with, do those who know you in your workplace, do they know that you, will they ever sense that you are actually working for, for someone way above everyone else's pay grade? You're actually working for the, the Lord. You're doing your work for Him and not just for a customer or for a coworker. And for those of you that have been doing more work from home since 
COVID? Are you working hard knowing that God sees you even if no one else on your team sees you? Do you labor for Him? Do you work hard? Do you you want to do all your work? Do you want to be productive? It's almost like, do, do do you know that heaven's Zoom camera is always on you, even if no other camera is. We've seen sometimes people forget they left their Zoom camera on, and there's some funny things you can watch there, but we need to know God is always watching us, even if no one else is. Older women, younger women, Titus 2 talks about workers at home. Do you see good work in what you do? Do you see that as a good work from the Lord, or do you often just say how, how bad you have it or how hard it is with your kids, young people? Do you work hard in your schoolwork? Do you do your chores as if for the Lord? Do you seek to help your mother and others at home and work hard to do that? And, and here's also a, a temptation, I think, as kids get older, they, they begin to be tempted by this political idea that the, the government should feed people who are able to work but who won't. God's law let the poor who were able-bodied work for food. It was not a modern welfare state. There was a, a work-for program. We see that later in God's law. But here's what 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says. If anyone is not willing to work, he shall not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons, as we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Be, be busy at the work of the Lord. Don't be busy bodies talking about things you shouldn't be talking about. And work hard and don't grow weary in doing good. And the implication there, this is another principle in the fourth commandment. If we work hard, we will be weary by the seventh day. Exodus 20 verse 10 says, On that day, don't do any work or your kids, or your servants, or people staying with you. If people work for you, they need rest. They need relief. And not not just on the weekend, but think about this with those you work with in the evenings, or phone messages, and and all that, to to really set that aside and and rest. And, And what the fourth commandment is saying is that work is important, but it's not our identity. It's not ultimate. Our identity is in who? It's in Christ. And we saw last time we rest in Him spiritually daily, but we we also need rest physically and regularly. So the whole family, when this was given, would work together to gather extra manna on Friday and would prep it before the sun would go down because no fire or cooking or housework was allowed on Saturday the ancient world looked down on women and their work. But God here, even in this command, is showing how he's lovingly uplifting women by giving them a weekly break from their vital work. And all God's women said, amen, we need that today, don't we? Men and kids as well, we need to learn from this family and friends. How can you help others apply this principle of rest or respite. We need to, I think, help each other with this. I remember with little kids years ago, I I gave my wife a break for a a few days as she went away, and after just a few hours, I I needed a Sabbath, uh, I, I felt like. I realized, wow, this is, there's a lot of work that I wasn't a aware of, but think about ways that you can come alongside. Whatever season of life you're at, there's, there's, there's people who are just overwhelmed and weary and could really just use some, some help, some rest, some respite, some ways that you could help them so they can get that. Think of a mom here. Think of a, a single mom here. Think of 
the heart-to-heart ministry that's starting up here. Uh, you could talk to Liz if you want to learn more about how they're trying to come alongside young moms. We have nursery here. We have toddlers church here on, on Sunday morning because we want to give moms an opportunity to have at least a, a, some break and some respite where they can hear and focus on the Lord and, and fellowship. But think of beyond Sunday ways that maybe there's someone on your heart that you could help come alongside. When my wife and I were a young couple before we had kids down at, at our church down south, we began, we were in a Bible study. We saw a lot of people with with young kids, and it seemed like they didn't even have much time to have a break for themselves or to go out, and so we just began offering free babysitting to several of those couples. That's not an open offer right now to everyone, but, um, but we, we can do things like that, can't we? And I know those of you that are caregivers, to, to try to find a 24-hour block of, of rest may not be real feasible, but there's more that we can do to help and serve others and to give them times of rest and respite. So I want to encourage you to pray about how you can labor in love for a family here or for a family in Christ or to do the Lord's work at church. And there is a church work day coming this Saturday, as you heard about earlier. But think about other ways that you can serve others. So those are some Sabbath reflections on labor, but I want us also to consider Sabbath regulations versus the Lord's day. Because verses 9 through 10 say, you shall work every day except the seventh day, every day except Saturday. So this is a command to work on Sunday, the first day of the, of the week. And Exodus 16, we looked at last time before this, told them to stay near their homes. And so those of us that are here today are actually 0 for 2 in, in terms of the original regulations. But Think about also the Old Testament law said not to buy or to sell. There was no fire to be lit. There was no animal to be loaded. And, and we're not that exact society today, but you think, well, is it okay if I load my, my minivan today? Is it okay if I turn on the stove today, a stove pilot, or to, to heat my home? It's starting to get a little bit cooler out here. Uh, it certainly wasn't a, a cold climate where this was given. But there's a lot of questions when you begin looking at the regulations and thinking about us today to wrestle with. The Sabbath law required sacrificing animals. It required stoning people if they were gathering sticks even for firewood. So nobody obeys the fourth commandment in the way Israel was to in their Sabbath regulations. There are some Hasidic Jews that would like to be able to have a society like that again and sacrifices again, but they can't. There's few professing Sabbatarians who work on Sunday, and, and none of them that I know of kill animals or kill violators of the Exodus commands. There were, there were few Puritans who had the stricter view who, who wanted a, a death penalty for a Sabbath breaker. There were a few writings that were wanting to bring back the the Old Testament law and its penalties, but the mainstream view on the regulations and their confessions was this, a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, and instead to be taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and Mercy. So a whole day free of recreation, all the day in rest and worship and only essential or merciful duties. And so there's those Old Testament regulations against work, but now speaking of words and even thoughts and recreational activities. And they didn't take the fourth commandment literally with its regulations from Friday night to to Saturday. They, they took out the requirements to work on Sunday, and there was a transfer and a modification of those restrictions, the fourth commandment against work on Saturday was now for worship on Sunday to many of our forefathers and and even heroes of the faith. And that transfer theology, that tradition, very much came to America through the pilgrims and others and to the colonies and influenced our society and a, a lot of good in that influence. And I appreciate the the Puritan confessions and the, the 1689 Baptist one especially. But there's, there's a statement in, in chapter 22, verse 7, 
It says this, that articulates it this way, One day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him, which from the beginning of the world was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. And there's some assumptions in there that just looking at Scripture, Scripture does not record Sabbath regulations from the beginning. Exodus 16 is the first in the Bible. There can be an assumption there, but it's not stated. And scripturally, it's, it's not just one day in seven in Scripture. It's always and, and only the seventh day in the Bible. And even the New Testament writers that are writing decades after Jesus rose from the dead, they are still consistently using the word Sabbath only for Saturday. And the Gospels and the Epistles explain many changes that Jesus made. Sometimes even in the text, they explain this is because Jesus was changing this. They don't explain the day and the name change, which would be such a monumental thing when it was all what their religion was about. And so Sunday is important. Sunday is the Lord's Day in Scripture. That is a statement in Scripture. But I don't call it the Sabbath because the New Testament doesn't, and the early church doesn't anywhere that I can find for for centuries. There's no record also of daytime corporate worship on Sunday or making it a holy day rest. It, I said last time it was a working day for the Jews and the Gentile Christians in the Roman Empire until the fourth century. And so they, they would gather in the evenings, but it was more the sixth century church that really began to push for Sunday rest from work to free up daytime worship. And at the same time, we need rest. We need worship. That's an important principle, but not necessarily the Jewish way or even using the Jewish words. And I want us to think a little bit about this. The Old Testament doesn't use the word synagogue. It doesn't command Sabbath or Saturday services in the synagogue. That was a tradition, but it was a good tradition. It developed many centuries after the law. It may have developed after the end of the Old Testament in synagogue Sabbath worship. We definitely see it in the New Testament. But it's not technically part of the Ten Commandments or the Torah, but it was a tradition that is good. And, and there's good in traditions that are rooted in, in Scripture. The New Testament does not command Sunday services per se, but it is a good tradition and, and a pattern we see. And I think it's an application of Hebrews 10. Do not neglect or forsake the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. We need to gather to encourage one another. So we do need to gather. And the Lord's Day is what Scripture calls the day that we gather today. I, I think the Reformed tradition is best, but we need to, by sola scriptura, Scripture alone, that needs to drive how we think and speak. And so turn with me to Acts 1. And I want us to see how the early church viewed their services and their Sabbath law restrictions. And what's interesting is early on, for Christ's followers, their corporate gatherings were not limited to a, a day. They don't seem to be law-based. Look at Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey Away. That was one of the traditions based on Exodus 16. They didn't want them to go far, and so the distance was about 3,000 feet or so that you could do a short walk on the Sabbath day. And even the Christians are still thinking in those terms early on. Verse 13 And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. And verse 14 All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. So these are all the believers gathering together, not just the 12 or 11 disciples, and this was for 10 days that they were gathering together until the Spirit came. And then Peter, in chapter 2, he preaches about the resurrection. Look at chapter 2, verse 42, then, as the church, as they repent, there's 3,000 added, Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what they focused on when they gathered and the verb here is continual. This was not just a service or a set time on one day. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. New King James has continuing daily or another day. Every day they, 
continued to meet together, another translation says. And so they were gathering, and gathering was a good tradition. It was a good thing that the Jews gathered on Saturday, but this was bigger. This was better for Christians. And, and go with me to chapter 13. But we need to also remember narratives aren't necessarily imperatives. When we see a, a story, that doesn't mean it's a command. So we don't have to meet every day. I think that would be great if we could. We get to today. I think we need to more. We need to be in each other's lives more. If not the whole gathering, a subset of that corporately and house to house we see in Acts is that wonderful pattern. It's it's good to devote to more teaching and fellowship. There's a new life group, I understand, that works for Wednesdays coming here on, on during the week that we'll be sharing more about as we can that you can come to if you're not in a group and would like to and that day works for you. But we need more body life from day to day on, on other times besides our time where we all gather together. The New Testament Jewish Christians, from what we can tell here in the New Testament and other places, continued to meet on Saturdays. The resurrection and their fellowship didn't make them neglect Sabbath Opportunities. That's what I would describe them as opportunities. Chapter 13, verse 14 says, They went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So when they're traveling, when they're, wherever they go, if it's, if it's a Saturday, they're going to go into the synagogue and, and be a part. Verse 15, After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up, and and what Paul does is he starts from the law. He starts from the exodus that we've been learning about, but he he preaches that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish law and the prophets. And in verse 42, the people ask him to, to come back the next Sabbath. It's because that was their next day off where they could gather in the, the daytime freely like that. And in verse 44, it says, Most of the city gathered that next Saturday. Now go to chapter 17, and these, the way these Jews kept Sabbath gatherings wasn't a command, but it was a custom that the Christians kept. Jesus himself followed that custom. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And if you go to chapter 18... Again, we see as these Jewish Christians traveled, they they kept that tradition and custom of Sabbath gatherings, chapter 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, so not just three Sabbaths, but every Sabbath, I think that is every Sabbath he could, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And in verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And so Crispus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, he believes in Jesus. And verse 11 says, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And this seems to be a pattern. Unless they got kicked out, they were continually going to gather on the Sabbath. And verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue. Paul, whenever he could, was keeping these Sabbath conversations going, and he, he later taught every day in chapter 19. There was a, a place in Ephesus where they were able to, to teach every day, which was ideal where that could happen. But go to chapter 20, because as the, we're, we're talking in, in Jewish traveling now, but as Christian churches began to get planted, it becomes clear that there was a new custom and tradition. Chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul did not speak from morning to midnight, but this was an evening gathering. It was Sunday, the first day of the week. This was a regular working day in the Roman Empire. But apparently it became a regular worship night for the early church. And after work, 
they gather for teaching and, and breaking bread. There's not a, a Christian Sabbath hint here, but for Christians, Sunday, there, there's a hint that it's, it's become important already. This was a regular thing. Paul knew he could gather with them together on this day. And for Christians, Sunday became important under the risen Christ. Jewish Christians also, from records we have, continued to gather on Saturdays in synagogues for decades. This is the only New Testament record of a first day gathering, but it's, it's significant because when it says on the first day of the week, that's an echo from another place in the Bible where all four gospel writers labor to make the point that it was on the first day of the week, exact same phrase that Jesus rose. And so as they gather together in that same phrase on the first day of the week, we, we see a connection as to why would they be gathering on this day? It's because the most significant thing in human history happened on the first day of the week. Bigger than what happened at Sinai is what happened in the empty tomb on the first day of the week. There's no hint that they were meeting because of the law in Exodus 20. It was because of the Lord rising on the first day of the week. And we worship here today not because of regulations for Jews, but because of the resurrection of Jesus for us. I don't know if you know that, but we gather on Sunday. Churches have been doing this for 2,000 years because of Jesus rising from the dead on Sunday. It's, a, it's appropriate for us to worship on this day. The Old Covenant Sabbath law didn't use the word worship in the commands, although I think that's a, a good extension of that. But New Covenant grace should, should drive our praise, I think, even more than anyone in the Old Testament did. And we need to worship, and we need to do this at least one day a week, but it will be even better if there's more times that we're gathering with God's people like they did in Acts chapter 1 through 2. And so I don't call Sunday the Sabbath, but it is important because it is the Lord's day. That's how the New Testament describes it. Revelation 1 verse 10 I think so. The Lord's Day. What did what did that look like, or what what did they think about that? John wrote that in maybe ninety five A.D. Ignatius is someone who overlapped with Polycarp and John, and probably knew him. He died around twelve years after Revelation was written, according to Eusebius, early church historian. Here's what Ignatius wrote. So shortly after John mentions the Lord's Day. Here's the understanding from this church father, Ignatius. Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner. Let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's Day as a festival. The Resurrection Day, listen to what he calls the Lord's Day. It's the Resurrection Day, the queen and the chief of all the days. I love that. Resurrection Day is the chief and queen of all days of the week. He's talking about on the, the first day is on which our life both sprang up again and the victory over death was obtained in Christ. This is why it was so important for the the early Christians there to to celebrate the Lord's day because it's it's the resurrection day. It's the 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 queen, the chief of all days. Our life came from this day. Our victory over death came on this day. Here's another quote that some would date to within 10 years of Revelation. We have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day. And so those early Christians met on Sunday instead of the Sabbath. Much later, Christians said Sunday is the Sabbath. But here, even in 363 AD, here's one of the church councils, Council of Laodicea, Canon 29 said this, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, then resting as Christians on Sunday, not the Sabbath. But they said we need to honor the Lord's day, and it's good for us, if you can, to rest as Christians on Sunday. Some of them didn't have the option yet to do that, but those who could we're to rest. I believe in Sunday afternoon naps. And all God's people over 40 said, amen. Some of you young people aren't that interested. But that's not a law. I think that's a good thing. It's good, but it's not a law. Listen to Romans 14, verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. 
another man considers every day alike. So in the Roman church, some people would consider one day sacred and not another, but another Christian would consider every day alike. Each one, he says, must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. It's, it's a good thing. And then he says in verse 10, You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? So, so some of them apparently saw every day as a day to rest and worship in the Lord like the early church. Some of them who were Jews would have still considered Saturday to be special in some way, and they were free to do that. It wasn't a sin for them to still want to follow some of those traditions or even some of those laws, as long as they weren't being legalistic about it. Later, Sunday to others would become special, and so they observed it to the Lord, which is not legalistic. It's not legalistic for someone to want to devote that day to the Lord. There's freedom in that, in the liberty of conscience. I have friends and family who who see and treat it as the Sabbath. I don't have any quarrel with them. I don't correct them. I, th- I think it would be better to have some overemphasis or even misunderstanding of Sunday than the irreverent and flippant attitude that many Christians have towards church and towards worship. I, I don't think we're in danger of, of thinking too highly of church and worship in, in much of our evangelical Christian culture, but how we want to honor the Lord on the Lord's day, which is what it is, let each be convinced in his conscience. But let's not judge or look down on brethren who differ. And when people don't do or, or do do the things that, that you wouldn't, we need to not judge them. That's what Romans 14 is saying. But think about some of the traditions that Jesus and the apostles didn't oppose. The, those Sabbath gatherings that were extra-biblical of the synagogue services, they did not oppose those. They, they were involved in those. And, and there's room for different Christian traditions and convictions about the Lord's Day, as long as we're not being like the Pharisees and coming up with our Sabbath regulations that everyone needs to be exactly like us or being judgmental or, or legalists about it. Here's what one of the Reformed Confessions said in 1566. We give no place to the Jewish observance of the day. We do not count one day to be holier than another, nor think that mere rest is acceptable to God. Besides, we do celebrate and keep the Lord's Day and not the Jewish Sabbath, but we do it with a free observance. There's a, there's a freedom and not a, a bondage. And this is some of those early Reformers did differ from those who were outside of the UK, from those who were in the United Kingdom. Even one of the, the best modern Presbyterian writers, B.B. Warfield, said this. I, I like this quote. Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him, and he brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him that resurrection morn. I think that's a great way to look at it. Christ takes that old Sabbath into the grave with him, but he brings out on the resurrection day, the Lord's day, and it is good and right for us on the Lord's day to focus on him. And we don't need the old day's regulations, but we do need a day of celebration. And it needs to influence and flavor the rest of our week as well. And so turn to Colossians 2, if you would. And if you weren't here last week, there's more context in there you may want to listen to. But there's a sense that someone would argue the fourth command actually expands, not just one day, but we're to rest in Christ in his work every day. But that doesn't mean that there's not still value in days, gathering on the Lord's day in particular. It's the new covenant day. Christ is our Sabbath but we also need times to be reminded of that. But look at Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. We're not to pass judgment or question people in regards to how they apply those things, including the Sabbath, because he says, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ, or the reality is Christ. So those things from the Old Testament, they were shadows. They were shadows of what was to come. And Paul links the the Jewish dietary laws and other festival days there as things that were foreshadowing Christ's coming. This is important. If you you look at the end of verse 20, the end of the verse says that we don't need to submit to other people's regulations, do's and don'ts. And verse 21, some of the regulations were things like don't handle. And, And some people come up with all kinds of rules for days. But these festivals were annual. These new moons were monthly. And so it seems the weekly Sabbaths are also shadows. Think of a, the sign to Disneyland. When you're going to Disneyland, there's a, there's a sign on the I-5 freeway that says Disneyland here. That's that sign that's pointing it to you. But you don't stop at the sign, do you? You don't stay at the sign. The sign is, is telling you, get off at this exit and you can go into the magical kingdom. And, and Jesus is the, the sign that he is here. That It's a shadow it's pointing to, but you don't need that sign at Disneyland once you're in the park. You don't need to go back to it in, in the same way that people did before, before they got in there and just hang around there. Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the spiritual rest. There's no human work that can save. You need to trust in Him. He's what it pointed to, and those signs are pointing you to the kingdom. But but why stay back at the sign if you can enter? If the greater has come that it pointed to, don't stay in the shadows. We need to experience and embrace Christ as the reality, as our rest, as our reorientation. And, and there's very much a sense we can do that on the Lord's Day, but that needs to become our life too. There is a rhythm we still need. We still need this rhythm. We need this wisdom of work and rest and worship and the rest of our week. There's a, a weekly cycle that God has designed us for that we need to consider and give thought to. There is a rest we still need. Most of us need to turn off more. Maybe some of us, a technological Sabbath could be a good thing, or season, or set times where we're not doing those things that we're always doing, even if it's not part of your job. I'm glad Chick-fil-A gives its workers Sunday off. I know there's a song by Tim Hawkins about that driving there and then finding out it's, it's closed, but, but some of you have to work on Sunday. There's people who are, do essential things. There's policemen and, and others who work in the medical profession who have to work on Sunday. And I think we need to think about other times where we can get that rest that we need. I, I know I'm guilty of failing to really rest even in times when I could and should. I, I want to Close with Kevin DeYoung, some things he said in a great sermon on this. He says, surely we're only hurting ourselves when we never stop. Can I say that all of you students, if you're going to study today, are dishonoring the Lord? No. But can I suggest to you that you'd find surprising blessing and freedom in setting Sunday aside? And he says, when he did that as a young student, he says, I like this quote, Sunday became for me an island of get-to in an ocean of have-to. I like that. To have an island of get-to in the middle of this ocean of have-to. And, and even just think about how we need rest and sleep every night. In essence, when we wake up, God can say to us, just so you know, I was fine without you. I managed It's okay. I'm God. You're not. You can rest. Let me do my work. De Young says, In an agrarian society, resting meant sit down and don't worry about the fields. For many of us with desk jobs, resting might mean go on a walk, ride your bike outside, and please don't answer emails. It says the, the Israelites had to trust. This, was, this rest was about trust. Would they trust that God was going to provide for them the manna on those six days and not the seventh? That if they didn't work, they were going to be okay. Can you trust, he says, this burden that you're carrying is not yours to carry alone? Can you trust, if you just cease and stop, that God can take care of it? 
You'll rest in Christ, rest in Him for salvation in all of life. He says, Sabbath rest means making Jesus the center of, of who you are, ceasing to find approval in others, stopping the foolish quest for our own righteousness and doubting God's promises. We need to trust that, that the true, what that rest pointed to, health, strength, vitality, and freedom, that can only be found when we cease from our labors and rest in His labors for us. Can you trust God enough to stop? You frequently forget it and never stop working, never stop cleaning, never stop planning, plotting, fretting, fussing, worrying, or trying to prove yourself to someone. Your parents, your spouse, your kids, or the church. You need to appreciate what it means to have the grace of rest. There's always something that you need to do to show to the world that you're worth something, that you're valuable, loved, and okay. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. And even in a real sense, your family does not ultimately depend on you. The sweet voice of Jesus says, come unto me and rest. Come to him. And since it is the Lord's day, are we teaching our kids that Sunday is the day we go to church or the day that we try to squeeze in church? Stuff is not going to stop on Sunday in our world, except for Chick-fil-A. But you're going to have to wrestle with and come to some conclusions. But I think here's an important question. Is there a more important habit to ingrain in us and in our children than the regular, virtually immovable pattern of gathering with God's people for worship on the Lord's Day? If it's the Lord's Day, we need to give the Lord first place. We need to prioritize worship. I do think the Ten Commandments speak to that, including the first that I said a few weeks ago that says he must be first place. And on the first day of the week, first things first, give the first and best of our Lord's day to him. It's like our money. All of our money is his, but we give first fruits. It's like all our time is his, but we need to give special time to him. So don't ask What's the checklist? I didn't put that on the back of your bulletin. Ask this, how can I choose to pursue love to Jesus more and honor him more on the Lord's day? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the rest that is ours in Christ. And we thank you for the the freedom we have, but it's not a freedom for ourselves. It's to be to freely and, and fully seek how we can love you more. Help us each to be convinced in our own mind and conscience as we study, but most importantly, to honor you. And we pray all these things in the name of our risen and returning Savior and King. Amen. Amen.